When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. John White, WebMD's Chief Medical Officer and host of the Spotlight On series from WebMD's Health Discovered podcast. For this special two-part episode, you'll hear up-close and personal journeys about being diagnosed with a rare type of cancer, multiple myeloma. He looked at me. I have been his patient for more than 20 years, and he said, this is really strange. You're an African-American, age 57. I've never seen this before. This back pain that you're continually having with no signs of osteoporosis. No signs, exactly. And I didn't have any signs of osteoporosis in my family history. Listen to Health Discovered on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. What is going on, Belly Up Sports fam? No Shaka Cummings, just Parker Ainsworth here to welcome you to a winter break edition of F in Sports, the podcast where teachers discuss sports biggest issues and let's jump right in this is usually the part where shaka asked me for a gold star and a detention but as you've probably noticed shaka's taking time to see his family and recharge for the second half of the school year so i guess i'll just go for it after that first half of the school year i really just have one detention this detention goes out to anyone and everyone who wants to try and act like teachers are working less or taking the easy way out. Yes, random person with a dog, Abby, on social media complaining about, quote, homeschooling your kids. This is you. Teaching remotely, hybrid, and in-person with COVID restrictions has been insanely difficult and something none of your kids' teachers could have ever prepared for. You are not a homeschool teacher all of a sudden just because your kids are at home working remotely or are doing remote work a lot more of the time. You're just a jerk. 
In a very similar vein, my gold star goes out to all those teachers out there teaching this year. You couldn't have trained for this year before the last nine months. You're working a bajillion extra hours, and if no one has said it yet, those who see you appreciate you. The work-life balance is never kind, but it has been even harder for teachers in 2020. Thank you to all the other teachers out there for all that you do, because someone had to say it, even on a sports podcast. On that note, this week we decided to check in with some other teachers from around the country to hear what their latest sports takes are. Please join me in welcoming a handful of hardworking teachers, enjoying a much-deserved winter break, and spitting about sports. Let's get to it. All right, so now we sit down with Mr. Ritz. Mr. Ritz is a first grade homeroom teacher. He's also taught various elementary school grade levels, science and PE in the past. And today we're going to talk with Mr. Ritz about baseball. All right, Mr. Ritz, the thesis reads, the current era of baseball is the new and real golden era. What do you think about that one? All right, thanks, Mr. Ainsworth. I would have to give that a grade of, like, I'm hovering between B plus, A minus, so I'm going to give it a, like a, a strong B plus. Interesting. I'm thinking A minus myself. I'm interested to hear what you got to say. All right, Mr. Ritz, you gave this a B plus that you think the current era of baseball is the real golden era. So talk through us what you're thinking there. What makes this so good? So I think there are two parts to this. One part, which I, I think carries the high grade, is the players themselves and the talent. I think we really are in the greatest era in baseball. And that's saying a lot compared to, you know, the Roos, DiMaggio's, Mays, Aaron's, all that. Um, but what kind of drops the grade for me is what we're doing or what MLB is doing about having this amazing abundance of talent. Are we really doing all we can to showcase this? I think that's what makes it the golden era is the things that we do to really push it to the front. So when Uh, you say, let's start with the first half. I mentioned in both halves of this. If you're talking about youth and baseball, you're talking about like Juan Soto. Who are we we talking about here? Juan, God, love Juan Soto. He is awesome. But you got Fernando Tatis Jr., who is maybe the most exciting player to watch. But you got Francisco Lindor, Bo Bichette. A lot of you have players who are sons of former Major League players who are better <laughs> than their parents. Um, <laughs> Don't tell Someone who's that. not quite as good as his dad yet, Vlad Guerrero Jr. If he can be anywhere near his dad, that's great because his dad's a Hall of Famer. But, you know, the whole Astro team was built on a young team. But you got Ronald Acuna, Trevor Story, Tim Anderson, great guys. And then all these awesome young players who are like 27 and under. And you can go on a whole list of guys and then not even talk about Trout. But then there's Mike Trout who's like in the peak of his prime and he's still, what, 29, but he's, he's young. All these amazing players uh, that are really fun to watch in every position. To me, this is the, the cream of the crop for shortstop. You got Lindor, right. Glaber Torres, Bobachette, Tatis Jr., Trevor Story, Tim Anderson. Oh yeah, there's Carlos Correa. <laughs> you know I was going to mention him. <laughs> Elvis Elvis Andrus is like on the way out. Like He's early 30s. He's going to be moved to DH, but he was a very productive shortstop and he's just kind of the forgotten shortstop in this group of great shortstops coming up. Right. Who already, already made their mark now. That one position is just completely exploded or how good it is. Well, so you've mentioned several key names and so I'm not going to keep listing. We could sit here and list names for a long time. Yeah. There are a lot of great baseball players right now. If you look at like eras of baseball, you've got like pre-World War II, which is mm-hmm. like you got Babe, you got like it's the only big sport in the northeastern quarter of the country. You've got like a very neighborhoody feel. Like the city of New York had like a bajillion teams, right? I would say a con to that era would be like it's still segregated. It's really only on radio. Post-World War II, you got a little bit more of the integration. You got Jackie. You also got Kurt Flood 
Rudd and the stuff he does for free agency across sports. It's really still just a Yankee-dominated sport, but so it's a little bit more open. I think the interesting thing here becomes how do you compare this era to the 90s, right? Because the 90s, you have just as many names and swag, and I'd argue that it's on a lot more people's television sets, right? The big drawback to the 90s, aside from that the Yankees are just the team that keeps winning, is that in the 90s, you got the steroid era. And so that weighs heavily in this. So what, aside from the fact that the Astros have been so good for the last four years, Evan, what is going to separate this era from the 90s or the 60s 50s what what's different here i think part of like sports like you have all it's baseball is a great example of you know analytics they were all about the small ball and like what the a's and billy bean did and now how that's translated but just the eye test when you watch it and how much fun they're having but then how good they are the plays they're making and the swag and a lot of it i think this era is you know their swag and then their level of play to back it up but they grew up watching those 90s players like the griffies the bonds the rock the bachettes and larry walker because all those guys, they watch them, and so they're bringing that flair to the game. Like, Griffey was one of the first ones to throw the hat backwards, and that was a big deal. Right. Bronze with the big e- earring, the cross earrings, and all, like, the jewelry. So now you got guys rocking jewelry, you know, having crazy hairdos and, like, beards and all sorts of things going on. And they get all this swag, but they're just so good. And then last year, you know, Fernando Tatis got in a lot of heat because he hit a grand slam on a 3-0 count. And everyone's <laughs> like, oh, you should have taken the pitch. They were winning by a lot. Basically, he just, like, crushed a home run against the Rangers of all teams <laughs> and i'm just like boo-hoo if you don't want him to hit a home run don't be that bad you know <laughs> so it's like they just like they go out with this attitude and have fun and all this flair and there's more there's bat flips there's gotta love a tim anderson dancing and celebrating and all these crazy fun celebrations when they hit home runs and make all these plays or even like the little like the little things each team when they get a single or double they have these little intricacies like this like hand motions or celebrations when they get like to second base to, towards their dugout so like similar to like a first down like when Zeke does his right. Gene Zeke thing. Like all these little things that you have to look for if you really watch baseball, they're kind of cool to see what the teams do. So it kind of brings out this liveliness and just this personality that you didn't really see. Definitely like I think pre-90s as much. I mean, there's so, more like aggressiveness before the 90s. But yeah, all that swag just really coming out. So you didn't give it an A+. And I got to assume that, that part of that is like all of this swag and personality saying you can now see is not as actually seen right like there's something about like there's more to be seen now even if there are less eyeballs or less attention to it right baseball has been under the microscope of how can we make it faster how can they make it more enjoyable or attract younger crowds and that's a really tough one because it's hard to change the game like they put a timer on for pitchers they only allow like certain pitching changes at certain like if uh, you have to face three batters they're trying to do things but it's still tough to shorten a game but in retrospect the length of the game is the same as you know football or basketball it's a three-hour game give or take there's no set time limit but it can also feel long because there's so much time in between pitches and plays which is similar to football but football is hitting each other and smacking each other and there's more kind of sprints with that so but yeah it's just it's hard how, how can they evolve the game to really show the world hey yeah we this is the best we've had we're we're growing as a sport so what can they do and that's where i've like okay well the commercially you can do things or like during to me covid was the perfect time to think outside the box like how can we really showcase if they're not gonna have a full season what can we do to really like at least get some people on the field well so i think like and oh, the covid season the 60 game mlb season on crack right it was like super yeah. fast rapid fire right talk to me about like you've had ideas on how they could have made that even more fun because i will say selfishly like having every game 
matter so much more was a lot of fun. Yeah, I I, I liked it, and by the end of the season, like that's it. Like I want <laughs> I want more <laughs> baseball, and also I play fantasy baseball, so I every day I'm I'm I have to track it, which right. is a lot. But for me, it's like well, at the beginning, no one really knew what was going on. The whole world was just trying to catch up and figure out what is this, and baseball was just about to start, so they had to me the luxury of okay, we can really think outside the box and do something different to still maybe get something involved. Like we can't really do a bubble because you know teams that are bigger than basketball are harder to do a bubble but for me it was and you can really kind of carry this into all-star weekends in the future having different all-star like skills challenges like basketball does or football kind of does but no one really watches football all-star weekend but like baseball you could have like an outfield challenge like either chasing down a fly ball or throwing like, throwing a guy out at home or you know catcher versus a base dealer challenge or a pitcher challenge like hitting targets by like, doing like all sorts of like acrobatic or like web gym type of plays right and put that talent and you can really just pinpoint okay we're going to take the best players from each region like the best players from the west the best players from the east and really put those players at the front and really get a chance for american sports enthusiasts to see oh, okay these guys are that good and like baseball still you know a booming sport um as far as the development of the players themselves flair and how much fun they're having and what's fun too is like during all these like the all-star games and during like spring training they mic up the players on the field and they ha- they talk to the players like basketball football they mic them up you can hear like later in the season they'll play the sounds but in baseball they actually interview the players during the game for spring training and all-star games it's really funny right. to hear them talk as they're at bat or as they're like <laughs> in the field like oh shoot gotta go i gotta get that ball and they like go run and chase down a fly ball so they One. find ways to like communicate with them but um that's all a so both halves of that are interesting evan because it's like the first half you're talking about showing off how much more skill these guys have even if in modern baseball you don't get to see throwing out runners as often because you don't have as many runners right it's like strikeouts and home runs in the modern game right right but you have a way to show that off and then b with how much more personality all these guys you're mentioning have right i mean with how much more personality they have even a guy like mookie right like as popular as mookie is I know a lot less about him than I do about his counterpart in Los Angeles, LeBron James, right? Some way to show off how cool a guy Mookie can be, because we get to find out how cool LeBron or how cool or how not cool Tom Brady, right? You get to know those people. Yeah, and what I think what's great about baseball, too, is they all have walk-up music. Everyone knows what walk-up music is. (laughs) They all get their own songs to walk up to, and so if you're at the field, then you you get to see it. You see them. If you really are someone who watches baseball already, you know what to look for, and you see that but for people who don't watch and like oh like how do we get them in like just like oh yeah we you know they play music they do stuff and i don't have all the answers but like what can they do for the game to really highlight the best parts of it? like mike trout and this is also part of mike he's not someone who puts himself at the front of you know the screen all the time he chooses not and it's and i respect that he doesn't have to be the guy but they don't do a whole lot to like hey mike trout is maybe the greatest player of all time when he's done how are they promoting him to the rest of the world they're not really doing that which is kind of like well the whole outside of baseball world's missing out on arguably the greatest player since like mickey mantle play baseball this is so great and it's great for baseball lovers but then how do we appreciate how do we show the rest of the world hey this is another sport we can all get into and i think shortening a season could be one way so it's not 162 game grind it's just a lot for fans to even keep up but it made this stretch this covid shortened season was like every game was was important like just so crazy because like okay we have two months to squeeze this in and it was kind of hectic and that was fun though and double headers were shortened like seven inning games so that was right. cool too it's like oh so we have a double header but they're also not like two nine inning plus games so and I, people you know complain well if it goes too long what do you do i think we could even shorten no extra innings after 10 like one extra inning and if not you have a tie move <laughs> on 
<laughs> but I think that's exactly it. Is you got to find ways to market the game because, like you're saying, Trout's as good a player as it's ever been. And so you got to find some way to get that more accessible for people. For sure. And you know, you could. If my thing is like, look at the Rangers. Rangers just built a new stadium. From what I've heard, it's beautiful. It looks really nice. I, I know people that went to a couple of playoff games, the World Series games, or NLCS games, and then they had other stuff there. And I've heard it's amazing just to look at inside. On the outside, it kind of looks like an eyesore, but the inside's important too. So I can live with it. But you have a brand new stadium you want to build. Why do you stick it in Arlington, Texas, when you could move it to downtown Dallas? I get that. Oh, well, it helps the fans who, you know, are living in Fort Worth and Dallas and anywhere in between. And, you know, it's helping all the current fans we have. But how, like, if you put it to Dallas, all those fans are still going to be fans. And they're still going to find ways to go to a game if they can. But when you move it to the city, you know, you get, I mean, obviously this year wouldn't have been the same because people aren't going to games. But, you know, when you leave work, oh, I can go catch a few innings at the game. I can go grab a, grab a drink, go with some coworkers. You don't have to stay for the whole game, but you're just there. And like when I was living in Washington and I actually worked at the National Stadium, you just hop off to the Metro and boom, you're at the stadium. You can get back on the Metro and go home. And then when I worked at the stadium, I'd do the pregame stuff and I would leave. But I'd stick around for three innings just to watch three innings of baseball. Like, oh, this person's pitching. Like, oh, maybe it's um Kershaw. Right. I want to see Kershaw. You know what? And I've seen a lot of baseball. I'll get three innings. I'm good. Like, it was cool to have that moment. And I can just go ahead and go. and I'll be back tomorrow. Okay, Parker. So the thesis statement for this commercial is... James Harden has the best beard in sports. What do you think about that thesis statement? Oh, I give it an A. You know, as a Houston guy, we we seem to have an affinity for our beards between guys like him, Dallas Keiko, lots of big beards in the Houston area. What do you think about the thesis? So I'm a Jets fan, and I absolutely love the beard that Ryan Fitzpatrick has. So maybe I would give Ryan Fitzpatrick the nod over James Harden. But... You're talking to a couple of bearded teachers, and we know a thing or two about making sure that you maintain that mane. So check out the beard struggle. The beard struggle, they make oils, they make balms, they even have this heated comb to make sure that you get your beard straight so that you're looking fresh. I know I've really enjoyed using the oil they make for my quarantine beard of sorts. It's nice and long these days, but it helps <laughs> keep it nice and healthy and hydrated. And if you're listening to our show, you can use FN Sports 15 and get 15% off your oils, your balms, your shampoos, conditioners, whatever you need to use to keep your beard looking healthy. Absolutely. Check out the beard struggle at thebeardstruggle.com. Whether you're just starting to grow or you have a luscious mane already, the beard struggle's got all the products that you need. The beard struggle, feast your face. All right. I'm now joined by Mr. Rob Holman. Rob Holman is an elementary school teacher, former kindergarten teacher, teaches younger kids too. He's taught in Texas, D.C., Virginia, and is now back where he was born in central Ohio. He's a diehard Ohio State fan, Blue Jackets fan, Cavs fan, in particular to today's discussion, a fan of the Columbus crew. Doing okay, Mr. Holman? Yeah, I'm doing great. Uh, All right, Mr. Holman, today's thesis reads, saving the Columbus crew and watching them win a championship less than two years later is the most underappreciated story in American sports. You hear that? And how do you grade that thesis? Um, I'm going to give that an A. I think for a lot of different reasons, and I think we'll get into that, but I'm going to give it an A. I think that's pretty much spot on. I'm pretty... I'm pretty high on it too, Rob. I'm going to sit at like an A- minus myself. There's always a bunch of feel-good sports stories, but there's some pretty cool stuff to unpack in this Columbus Crew story. 
Okay, Mr. Holman, we're both pretty high on this thesis about the Save the Columbus Crew story. And I got to say, part of my reason I think it's so underappreciated is I didn't know a lot about it before we started chatting about what we're going to talk about today. So will you explain to us what is the Save the Crew story? Yeah, so um, I was uh, I grew up in central Ohio. I grew up near Columbus. I went to crew games when I was younger. So I always had the crew in my life. They're an MLS team. They're an original MLS team. They had the first soccer-specific stadium built um, in the entire country for an MLS team. They originally played at Ohio. Stadium or Ohio State plays. They got this stadium. It's a pretty nice stadium. It hosts a lot of national teams uh, wins against Mexico. Some of the biggest uh, U.S. national team wins um, in history happened there. But kind of 2010 or so, 2010s, they kind of got tough financially. The stadium was kind of out and a big fairground's not really downtown. And the original ownership group sold the team to this guy named Anthony Precourt, Precourt Sports Ventures. He buys it. He says all the right things in the beginning. He says, we're going to keep the crew in Columbus. He says, we're going to, we're committed to the community. Comes out three, four years later, um, starting in like 2017, that he's been secretly basically planning a move to Austin. And he would kind of not say in that same way, he would say that the team wasn't viable, but everything that kind of comes out is that he's he wants to leave for Austin. There's an escape clause in the original contract that nobody outside of like MLS knew about that says you can move to one spot and that's Austin. So it seems like the league's in on it. And so it's like, it looks for all intents and purposes like the crew, the Columbus crew, one of these original teams that has a lot of deep roots in the community for 20 plus years, is moving to Austin for like a cooler, hipper city, about the same size, but a much cooler city. And then so big grassroots um, movement starts from the fans, lawyers get involved, people of all different professions get involved, and it kind of reaches all the way up into like upper echelons of government in Ohio. And eventually the state sues free court under the Art Modell Law, which we can get into, which is <laughs> which uh, has to do with the Cleveland Browns being stolen in the middle of the night. So that comes back up. And eventually, after a year, year and a half of fighting on a lot of different levels, and a lot of different efforts. The Haslam's, who own the Browns, step in with some local investors as well and some local connections in Columbus to buy the crew from Precourt. Precourt still gets his expansion in the future in Austin, which will still happen, but he's defeated. The crew is saved is kind of the, the really quick synopsis. And then less than two years later, as we're sitting here, the crew are MLS Cup champions and they have a brand new, like sparkling stadium coming this summer, which I pass basically every other day driving around Columbus. And so it's like <laughs> a pretty, I'd say, amazing, from really about to leave 98% to being the champions, getting a new stadium in Columbus downtown and being like a, like a centerpiece of that area in Columbus. So I will get more into why it's underappreciated. I think it's really underappreciated, obviously, because it's MLS. If you think think Green Bay Packers, one of the original NFL teams, they had a lot of success. The, the crew actually won a, their first um, MLS Cup in 2008. So if Green Bay was bought, you know, by some millionaire. And then three years, four years later, he says, ah, we're going to pack them up and move to Austin, right? We're going to go to Austin. It's a better market than Green Bay. We just can't sustain ourselves here. I mean, imagine how, imagine the story in Americans, how, how much attention that would get. I mean, it would be it would be absolutely insane, right? And obviously, the ML- NFL is just garners that attention, but I think that's why it's underappreciated. Well, it's interesting too because I feel like it's getting underappreciated and underdiscussed because Austin's still getting a team, which obviously as a Texan and someone who grew up in Austin myself, you know, you look at the city of Austin. It clearly is a place the MLS is trying to get to because not only is it population's gone up. What am I looking at this graph here? It's just over doubled in the last not even twenty years. But the you look at Austin's growing. It's a soccer centric city because it's kind of hit trendy urban right and so you've got austin clearly was a place they wanted to get to as a league so they do like you're saying they put that clause in the contract
contract when Precourt buys the team to eventually get the team to Austin. And then this legal battle happens and he can't move the team to Austin. And so they just give him an expansion team in Austin, right? And so it, it looks like that was always going to be the goal, which is interesting. I, I think the biggest part of the story, though, is that the fans themselves, it's like a, it feels very grassroots, right? Like it starts with the city of Columbus. This isn't lawyers across the league or a bunch of owners saying, screw that guy. This is normal average people, a group of normal average people that are yeah. involved in hashtag save the crew. And it takes off from there. Yeah. And, and and so there's, and it wasn't just like support and it helped the legal effort. I mean, I, I mentioned the legal thing with the Modelo because it's interesting because it relates to how the Browns left um, in the 90s. But that would not have happened. That would not have been successful. Like the lawsuit didn't even have to go through. I mean, the, the pressure it put on pre-court and MLS to find another owner was immense. Um, I'll talk a little bit about the pressure and then some concrete things they did. I mean, the commissioner of the MLS was getting booed. He was get. I mean, you look at any tweet from Don Garber when this was going on, 2017, 2019, even the PCS now. I looked at one yesterday. There's a, he tweeted something about, like, Christmas. The first response was something about Save the Crew. He was, I mean, he was being <laughs> browbeaten at any public opportunity of, you know, why are you ripping this team from its community? You know, why couldn't you let Austin just have its expansion team and not rip this team from one of the original communities of MLS? And just, like, at every turn, this huge movement was kind of coalescing. And, I mean, in different stadiums around the, around the whole league, every stadium, every team would have a Save the Crew banner at one of their games. It'd be Came this really big movement across the league any any team one other little wrinkle Cincinnati got its first MLS team two years ago. So as Cincinnati comes into Ohio, they thought they're <laughs> going to have a rival about two hours away, right? This great rivalry called the Hell is Real rivalry because between Columbus and Cincinnati, if you're driving south on 71, there's this massive billboard that says Hell is Real. One of these like, <laughs> billboards. So they named the rivalry Hell is Real, Columbus Cincinnati. But it was it was not going to exist, right? They were going to move Columbus out right as Cincinnati came in. So a lot of support from them. But concrete things that the movement did, they they did. I mean, because they lawyers and all these people on their side who were just fans who worked tirelessly they got 12,000 season ticket pledges so they had people just pledge that they would buy season tickets if the crew stayed they got business sponsorships and business and businesses who committed to sponsoring the team if ownership committed to staying in Columbus so it wasn't just like this kind of support group it was like concrete measures they took that really made a big difference but it was grassroots it was being done by fans fans who had expertise um, right but fans and I think that's pretty unprecedented in the success and it's probably unprecedented to some degree because in the 90s you just can't network as well and as quickly right you know our, well, yeah. they can, well, can yeah. bring the team away real quickly and it, it can happen but social media well and nah. i wonder if there's some playbook here for when teams threaten you know the way they see I, i'm a basketball guy when i think about how the seattle sonics left very it wasn't in the middle of the night like the browns but they left very much to find oh it looks like there's this mark in oklahoma city because you know the new orleans at the time hornets had just played a season in Oklahoma City because of Katrina and it looked like it went well and so on. Oklahoma City likes basketball so they're going to move Seattle there, right? And it's like if there had been the same kind of blueprint for how to do it, you might have been able to talk the NBA into the type of expansion they're talking about now. Somewhat ironically about expanding in back into Seattle, right? And it's interesting when you talk about underappreciated sports stories, I think about like what are the big sports stories of 2020? You obviously have anything pandemic, postponement, COVID related, right? You have like Pat Mahomes is big in the NFL. The NBA, you had to 
Lakers winning it all after Kobe Bryant passed away. You have the Dodgers winning it all also after Kobe Bryant passed away with Mookie Betts and Clayton Kershaw and you had LeBron James and the Lakers. You have the Adobe NBA bubble and their social justice movement. You had the Milwaukee Bucks postponement and all the trickle down that had. You know, on a different note, you could have the Astros cheating and that scandal. You could have Sarah Fuller and, you know, playing college football as a woman and scoring and extra points and so on. But there's something different about a movement that isn't a big winning franchise or some scandal bad thing. It, it's it's neither one of those. It's really about fans. Yeah, I think it's just really positive. So like, I'd say the, they win the championship this year, so we haven't talked about as much, but less than two years later, they win the championship. They have a tough year last year, and then they come into the like, little MLS bubble, which they do a little tournament in Orlando. They do pretty well there, and they do decently in the regular season, but then they just run the table in the playoffs. They, I mean, they have the most dominant playoff run, maybe in MLS history, the, the most dominant MLS Cup victory. They beat the Seattle Sounders, who were favored by a goal or two, three to zero. They were missing two of their major players in the midfield, Pedro Santos and Darlington Nagby. COVID, so they were kind of written off, and they went three zero at home. So the home in MLS, whoever has a better record gets to host the MLS Cup. So you get to like host the Super Bowl, basically. Right. And in the last game in this original stadium before they moved downtown, they went three to zero. So it's just like a pretty amazing turnaround amazing story and i think it's definitely underappreciated just because it's mls and i think that's just how it is mls is not obviously as popular as any of the big three or four sports but it's getting bigger i think it's very popular in pockets and there's a lot of diehard diehard hardcore fans i mean i'll admit i'm not i was not a diehard mls fan i'm probably still not but i think because of the crew's resiliency because of the success in the community because of them staying it's maybe someone who i will probably definitely buy tickets to at least at least a few if not all of the games next year i mean there's not as many the MLS games is like hockey games, but I'll, I'll be there at the new stadium because of the success and because of just them sticking with the community. One, if again, tying it to the Seattle Sonics, as I see the similarity, right? The Oklahoma City Thunder, which were the Seattle Sonics, were in the NBA championship four years later. That was considered crazy, right? That was like, oh my gosh, this new team with a bunch of young guys. It's got Durant and Westbrook and Harden and Ibaka. And oh man, they're in the finals against LeBron and they just got to the city and it's going to be so much fun. Obviously, that all dissipated and all those guys left and so on and so forth but that was a big fun story imagine had seattle as a city been able to fight and keep that team in a similar way and that all happened in seattle after they fought for the team like the levels of the story only increase and there's just a lot of crossover similarities i see now that i don't know if you have you know certainly not as easily a team leave a small market for a growing one you might have you know small for large but not for just a growing market because that was a big part of the argument here right yeah and yeah i i that's i think it's a really interesting hypothetical so what what year is that is that in, that's in they the leave in they leave in the summer of 08 and they yeah. go to the nba finals in 2012 so like you have social media then but you don't have the kind of like rabbit i think like twitter movements which can like crop up like i right. mean just like you see with black lives matter and 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 movements that are they're not driven online but they're just they're amplified and they're multiplied by the power of social media and yeah i do think there's probably a different especially where when it's not i think there could be definitely be a, a different outcome in some like the Sonics case. I don't know if you compare like the Raiders moving to Vegas. I don't know as much about that. I don't know if that's because they kind of always played in, in Vegas or maybe they they, had, they weren't originally in Oakland, right? They're, they're Los Angeles Raiders and if that's a little different case. But if you have a team that's originally from one city, has been there the entire time and is deeply rooted in the community and they try to move like the Packers, it just, it probably, yeah, it's a lot, it's made a lot harder by the shaming power of social media because it's, I mean, obviously billionaires can do what they want. Ultimately, they can probably force things through. 
but PR is important to them as well. It's really bad PR to get that much yeah, flack on social yeah. media for however long you're going to Well, exist. and billionaires doing what they want. I mean, Precord himself is still involved with the Austin FC group. He, he clearly wants to be involved in the MLS and Austin, and those two things are still happening for him. So as much bad press as he's gotten, and I'm sure it only will get worse <laughs> as the FC Austin begins playing games in 2021, I'm sure it's only going to get worse for him. That'll be a great game if they come to Columbus. Oh, that'll be sold. I guarantee that'll be sold out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So for our next guest, we're joined by Mr. Marcus Sesson. Mr. Sesson is a third grade teacher in the D.C. area. Although he's a native of Queens, New York. Shout out to Queens, New York. He is a big Las Vegas slash Oakland slash Los Angeles Raiders fan. <laughs> and so he joins us to talk a little football today in this holiday season. Mr. Yep. Sesson, our thesis reads that John Gruden, head coach of your Las Vegas Raiders, should not be in charge of an NFL organization. You hear that, and what kind of grade are you thinking? Park, I'm thinking it's a B, man. I think that's a B. <laughs> you know, good head coach, good offensive mind, but head of an organization, no way. No way. <laughs> that's interesting. I'm probably in a similar but i might say c plus just to you know be a little different but i'm thinking similarly so we'll see we'll see what we agree on here in a second all right mr sesson so you gave the thesis on john gruden a b that you're kind of in the middle about whether or not he should be in charge of an nfl organization so what you thinking what made what made you give it a b mr ainsworth i would say um number one it starts it starts with like him as at the head of an organization he in my mind, just lacks the patience and the long-term vision to keep the team going in one direction. I think that he makes a lot of snap decisions, specifically on the personnel side. I think that as a coach, he's able to script offensive drives really well. He can teach players really well and develop strong relationships. I am just not impressed at all by his ability to parse through the personnel department, you know, talking with Mayock about players. I think he, he's a little bit too high on a lot of guys. Uh, he sees green lights the whole time that he's in the draft room, and then he gets them on the field, and suddenly he's tired of them and he wants to be rid of them. So <laughs> to, to me, he, he can't do that stuff well. Like, he just only needs to be in charge of the stuff that happens on the field, nothing else. Well, and I, I'd agree in a lot of that in that his strengths are the on the field weirdly even though he's 10 years removed from coaching when he got hired by the the, at time oakland raiders he is good at the on the field stuff he he runs a west coast based offense i say based because they run some of this you know it's like an rpo type deal with a power and a flat out of the tight end slash fullback slash h-back guy and you had a fade on the outside he does some newer stuff within his west coast parameters everyone knows the spider two wide banana is a throw back to where you get tight end in the corner and we joked yeah, off pot a little bit about getting the right tight end there because like waller can really do that <laughs> exactly. um, but at the same time he gets a lot of power with the las vegas raiders so tell us when you say personnel decisions like what exactly are you talking about because he has a lot of pull there yeah so i think the, the major one is the big trade like just giving him up for one first round draft pick and then swapping a first and a second i think that's one thing that a lot of people tend to ignore is like they got two firsts for mac and it's like well they got one one first for mac and then they swapped their second for a first uh for the for the 2019 draft i think it was right like that to me was he basically forced reggie mckenzie the gm at the time to make that trade really at the worst possible time like that's not when you want to be making that trade which which really forced him to scramble i think another example is the draft that year we talked about this off pod as well like trading a third round pick from martavis bryant out of nowhere that guy had two strikes for illicit drug use and then he was going to be gone and that's exactly what happened like 
Like that's a third round pick that they have burned away and they will not get back. Like those decisions, you don't get those back. And in a game that's decided by inches where you need every edge, he's giving those edges away with those decisions. Edges and one of the best edge players, right? I mean, when you talk about Khalil Mack, yeah. a guy that had just won Defensive Player of the Year in 2016. Mm-hmm. So, it, like, he's not far removed from that. He's a relatively young football player. Like, yeah. he, not only has he, like, young in the sense that he was you know what was he 27 26 years old he'd only been playing yeah. since he was you know 17 18 years old so he was exactly, still growing yes. in a lot of ways just a weird was hungry park that's the other thing yeah like, this isn't a kid who you know was messing around or wasn't motivated like he is one of the most motivated guys in the entire nfl in my opinion i don't say that to exaggerate like he when you talk about his weightlifting regimen like he takes i think two days off a year like one <laughs> for christmas and another for his mom's birthday like that's, a, that's just the kind of guy he is um <laughs> gotta and, take and off mom's so for birthday. john to come in yeah exactly right? you, got, you gotta celebrate mama um it just it, it frustrated me to lose that kind of a guy and then you know I, I like some of the guys that they brought in in those drafts like josh jacobs super talented player right um i like trayvon mullen the corner they got from clemson like that that kid i in my opinion is a solid player who could become a stud but they've also had some bad picks like the safety that they caught jonathan abram yeah, like, yeah. not really panning out like and, and this is really his first year in the league because he tore his shoulder but he he's just He's looking bad. That's looking like a mistake at this point. That's a first-round pick. The deal with Abrams, as you'd say, is just a torn shoulder. But as a defensive player using those shoulders to tackle people, like it is being, what is it, the old coaches coaches talk, it's like availability is the best ability. Like being healthy and on the field is a thing, right? It's a defensive issue. And he, you know, he's a fun guy when they had hard knocks. Abrams, I guess Gruden is as well. But he was a fun guy when they had hard knocks come through. But, you know, he he hadn't gotten a whole lot of run even this year. He hadn't looked great. You know, he's he had was it he had an interception against cam newton but like that looked a lot better in week three than it does in week 16 right and so it's big part but like the big highlight for him park is the blown coverage that he had in the second chiefs game man yeah on travis well and so that's got to be kind of where we fall out of b or a c plus on this right is as crummy as times have felt in the almost three full years of john gruden they are the only team to beat kansas city this year now we'll say that we're recording on a saturday and so we'll say that and someone will beat them this week and make us look silly but yeah the only team that has beaten Kansas City thus far. And I'd argue based on how tightly they played the second game it wasn't a fluke no and so I, those are like moments where you feel like oh this thing could be working right yes yes like that is the, that is the upside of of what he's been able to do right like he there there are streaks in this team like Derek Carr is having a career year the offense it like was at one point I don't know if they still are ranked in like the top 10 scoring like they do a lot of things well when things are going well but this is the same thing that happened last year is they start the year off and they're looking pretty good they were six and four last year they were six and four this year and it's like all right we have an easy schedule coming up to close out the year how are they going to finish and they the the wheels freaking fall off man and at the end of the day like that's on him like he's the head of the organization he's the one that should be preparing this team week in week out well and so bad head of organization again does speak to this idea that like he has more pull than a normal head coach does because correct a normal head coach, you could look at like, well, who does he have on the team around him? What happened with his quarterback, right? What happened in the division? They are in the division one of the best teams I've ever seen play football, right? Th- those are sure, all factors sure. if he were a normal head. And but he's not. But he's not. <laughs> right. That's, that's not. the big difference is that when he's yeah. not... 
and they go four and twelve. They go seven and nine. They're sitting here. They're currently ahead of the Dolphins. So we'll see if that result. I mean, it's it's super early and it's just seven to three. So I don't know if the result holds at all. But you know, if they go five hundred this year, like those are things that do fall on him as a coach, and they seem to fall extra on him because of his time in other offices in the facility. Right. Agreed. And I think that he he's held on too long to Paul Gunther. They got the defensive coordinator who he fired two weeks ago. Um, hmm. And I think that that's part of like he brought Nor- he brought him on Gun- uh, Gunther on him and said, you know, this guy is, you know, world class. And he's like the guy that I would have picked if there was anyone available. And he has looked horrible for the last three years. I mean, like when you look at the Raiders and their downfall, like it has been the defense. And he just didn't pull the trigger on getting rid of him until it was far, far, far too late. And that's a John Gruden decision. Like, there's nobody else that outside of Mark Davis who's going to be able to make that call. Right. Um, like, that's that's him. That's him choosing not to let that, that guy go. Well, and it's interesting that in previous stops, when he didn't have that kind of power, his last three years in Tampa were not great. But before that, he'd gone 12-4, and four, and a couple years later was 11-5, and five, right, mm-hmm. while he was in Tampa. And then his four years, his first time around Oakland were really strong, right? Eight and eight, eight and eight, twelve, four, ten, six. And then his obviously goes to Tampa Bay right away and wins Super Bowl against those Oakland Raiders. Like he he built up yeah. two different Super Bowl contending teams at the same time, it felt like. So yeah. when he had less say, he was still he was a very strong coach. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I think that that speaks to like his ability to take things that he's been given and, and, and work well with them. I think that like say what everyone will about Al Davis, you know, from two thousand three on. I mean like that guy up until that point was, you know, a, a football genius. Like that guy has forgotten more football than either of us will ever know. But those teams that he put together in the two thousands were like that was a really high quality team. It, it just they didn't they didn't end up winning the big one. And and John was able to do it. Like there was a pretty good piece it was written by the guy in the athletic, Mike Lombardi. Um I think it was Lombardi, maybe it was Kawakami. That like John Gruden essentially needs he needs a villain. He needs someone mm-hmm. to be playing against, right? And and when he was in Oakland it was Al. Uh when he was in Tampa Bay it was uh like the owner, I think, or you know, or, the, or no, it was the GM because they fired Bruce Allen. Mm-hmm. And there's no one now. There's no one that he can He's point to buddy. and say it's their fault. Yeah. No, well and it's on him. It's interesting, too, you point out Al Davis, like, the hire of John Gruden in 98 that Al Davis, you know, he was the youngest head coach in the league at the time, and that was, like, going out on a limb, and it worked out not terribly differently than the way that L.A. went and got in McVeigh, got Sean McVay recently, yeah. right? Like, it, it's yeah. weird to think that 20 years later, the same kind of thing is happening, but you'll go get some well, young guy in their 30s that understands where the game is going, because Gruden had coached with Mike Holmgren in Green Bay, and he knew this West Coast offense, and you know, get Sean McVay that runs the RPO, understands modern offenses. And so then he runs it with golf in, in Los Angeles. And it, it is, there are similar things. I just hope we're not, you know, subject to Sean McVay giving us bad takes in a booth for 10 years or, you know, but it could all happen again. Who knows? Well, McVay started his career with Groot. Like he was, he yeah. was a wide receiver coach in Tampa. And then the other cool thing about the Gruden hire is, do you know who the runner up, like the other person that, I was, don't, that was in the room? I don't recall who that was. Through. Oh, Belichick. Back in 90, yeah. It it was post the Browns, I think. He ended up going to the Jets. But yeah. And I don't think that Gruden, or rather, I don't think that Belichick would have worked out. He and Al would have been too, they would have seen things too differently. But I think, again, that just speaks like Al Davis at that time still knew what he was doing, right? Like he had two solid coaches for their era in the room. He was going to make a good decision with either of them. 
All right, we have Mr. Rodriguez on the line here. So, Mr. Rodriguez comes in with a thesis on Lamar Jackson. The thesis reads, Lamar Jackson is the best quarterback that has yet to sign an extension after their rookie deal. You hear that? And what do you think? I'm going to give that a B plus. B plus grade. I, I'm thinking something similar. I'm probably in the A minus range. Uh, having an MVP trophy certainly helps. Uh, we're talking about a lot of young guys, though, so... We'll see, we'll see where the differentiation is in a second. All right, Ms. Rodriguez. For those that don't know, Ms. Rodriguez is coming to us as a career counselor at Cal Maritime in the Bay Area. Uh, he's also worked as a high school football coach. He's done some work in schools beforehand. And so, Ryan, talk to us. You gave this a B-plus grade about, you know, is Lamar Jackson the best quarterback that has yet to sign his extension? And feel pretty confident about it. And So I want to hear what you got to say. Uh, Yeah, Parker. I just think, and as you had just previously mentioned, Lamar has that MVP. So we already know kind of the levels of play that he can get to, both running and passing the ball. We saw that all in 2019. And while he's taken a, a clear step back this year, he's still not having, that, you know, those really bad years that like Josh Allen had, who I would say is his competition right now. Um, Kyler Murray, he's about at their level um, in their in their worst years. And so I feel like Lamar has shown a height that he can get to. And then his level of play is going to be somewhere in the middle, I think, going forward. And him in the middle going forward compared to what I think Josh Allen and Kyler Murray will get to even, you know, Joe Burrow, Herbert. I think he has the brightest outlook. I, I say it's interesting because it really does highlight this thesis highlights that like how strong this young class of guys are because in the non-extension signed people you've got Baker Mayfield they may make the playoffs Josh Allen they may win the AFC East Kyler Murray is lighting the world on fire out there west no pun intended for fires out west but you also have like you know Joe Burrow Tua Tagovailoa some rookies and I'm a big Jalen Hurts guy he's got the job in Philly now there are a lot of good options to go with this Lamar being a little bit more proven in the past there are plenty of people I think they would argue that Baker's having a better year this year though right I guess yeah if you wanted to look at record and Baker's been um, been killing it. I got to say the last couple weeks, I'm not a big Baker Mayfield fan, but you got to say the last month, month and a half, he's been playing really well in the Browns offense. And like you said, there are there is a lot of stiff competition. I mean, Lamar played was the MVP last year. Josh Allen is playing not that level because Mahomes um, and Rodgers have kind of been <laughs> yeah. next level. But Josh Allen has been you know top five quarterback. I don't I think that's pretty hard to deny this year. Right around there, um, Herbert even has played great. But I still think I mean this is a bad year for Lamar, and he's still got decently low turnovers. You know, he's starting to play better. He had a tough tough start to the season opponent wise, and I think he's going to have a good playoffs if. If they can get there, I mean, Tua and Baker might conspire to keep him out. <laughs> well, and that would be the ultimate, like, we got to win this thesis because we're going to keep him out together. But I think it's interesting because, like, that 38-6 to win over the Browns in week one this year, in which... He did throw the ball pretty well. Three touchdowns, no interceptions. He always runs the ball pretty well. That looks better and better the more removed we get from it. Obviously, his Monday night win over the Browns is like one of the best games this year, even if he had to poop himself in the middle. <laughs> um, cramps. It was cramps, dude. It was cramps, yeah. Well, I've had those kind of cramps before. <laughs> Do you foresee, like, we have this thesis now, Joe Burrow is hurt. We have this thesis now, Jalen Hurts is like two starts under his belt. Do you foresee someone else getting in the conversation, or is it really Really, Baker, Josh, and Lamar. Kyler, I'd throw Kyler in there too. And I would actually say Herbert would be, if I was looking looking to those rookies, I would have to go with Herbert. I know following, um, following your guys' podcast, you and Chaka were pretty high on Joe Burrow coming out. 
and <laughs> I like I like Joe Burrow. The arm strength. There's there's some uh, I don't, I don't want to say issues to like sound bad, but um, just some questions there that I think he needs to answer to get to that elite of elite. I thought Herbert had all the physical talent. I didn't actually like him at Oregon, but what he's shown unleashed in the NFL is I think the most promising that the rookies have shown. Um, and so I would say he would be first first on my list to kind of break into that conversation with the other guys. Well, and I, I'm not a big win-loss as a single-person stat record, so I'm not going to you know wave that for Herbert. He does have a great touchdown-to-interception ratio, good completion percentage, and so on. Kyler gets the benefit of playing with DeAndre Hopkins this year, right? And so that, that's a big benefit out West. The deal that Lamar brings is as shifty as Kyler is or as tough a runner as Josh Allen is. Lamar Jackson's different with the ball in his hands out in the open field, right? Like there's some, well, Bill Polian thought he was a receiver, I guess, but there's something about the way he moves that is a little bit different. Definitely. I mean, I think you watch any Baltimore game and when Lamar decides to run and like really just like takes off, he, it's like he's jumping a couple yards where nobody else has that acceleration at quarterback to just get from point A to point B. And that does matter. I mean, if you want to talk about like they, ha- you're having a bad passing game, which everybody's going to run into to various levels. That ability to still have a high floor that you'll attain because your running ability is so good, I think can't be discounted. You know, it's not maybe quote unquote traditional, but it's effective. And while Josh Allen and Kyler, I mean, Baker, even to a little, definitely a lesser extent, um, they're all mobile. Lamar's just different. It really is just different. It comes down to that, I think. It is fascinating that this next crop of quarterbacks, I mean, the next guy's up for an extension, you kind of have to build your offense on each one, right? Like, Baker needs an offense where he can turn and hand it to Nick Chubb a lot. Josh Allen runs like the Cam Newton light offense, I've called it before, right? Kyler has got his own combination of what Russell Wilson does getting out of the pocket, but also has to be able to boogie a little bit downfield. They're all, and then obviously Lamar Jackson and them run a very different offense from the NFL traditional norms. It's It does require all of these young guys, the way the game's going, it requires doing something a little different. Yeah, I would say, though, the thing that separates Josh Allen and Kyler and Lamar for me from Baker is... I want to build my offense around those guys and their teams are building it around them and their skill sets where I think you kind of alluded to it with Baker. It's it's really Nick Chubb and the offensive line running the ball that they're using and Baker is, you know, drop back some, but a lot of the play action stuff and, you know, it's bootlegs and, and things like that. And I think um, building it around Josh Allen, Kyler, Lamar is going to be more effective in the long run. And I just think they're better. You know, Baker has a chance to be be good still. Um, he's, you know, obviously been up and down throughout his career. But those guys, I think it makes sense to build it around their skill sets. And we talked about Herbert. We looked at the rookie class. We talked about, you know, in the in his own class, you're looking at Baker versus Lamar. We've talked some about Josh Allen. You know, we haven't talked at all about college kids because of the big jump, right? Like, everyone anticipates Trevor Lawrence being a top overall pick this spring, Justin Field. We're leaving those guys out just because they haven't proven themselves yet? Yeah. I mean, just, it, it becomes more and more projection. Like, even, I would say, with the three rookies this year, I even feel like it's so early. And, and, and then especially, obviously, with their offseason, so much different. The um, pandemic, lack of meetings, all that kind of stuff made it even t- uh, more difficult. So trying to then project, you know, the, the incoming rookie class of 2021 is just a bridge I'm not ready to cross yet. All right. For a little hardwood thesis this week, we're joined by Mr. John David Penn. John David is a middle school teacher in the Atlanta area. 
but he is also known as a diehard MFFL, which is a math fan for life if you're new to the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. He is joining us from a mountain peak in North Carolina, I believe, and so yep. <laughs> this is going to be interesting, but welcome Mr. Penn. Thank you, Mr. Ainsworth. I was say, and also at school, we go by our first names at my school. So if you want to, you can just call me JD or John David. I can call you Mr. Ainsworth the whole time. Have <laughs> a right. weird power dynamic going. <laughs> All right, JD. This week's thesis is Giannis Antetokounmpo taking an extension in Milwaukee was actually the best thing for the Dallas Mavericks. You hear that, and what do you think? And so I hear you clipping for me. Well, as I'm on this mountaintop, but I'm going to assume that the recording is still going okay for you and you can hear me fully. Yeah. I've given this thesis as a finished product. I, I'm not considering a finished product. I think this is like that meeting where you go into the teacher and you're like checking out your thesis before you get the okay to write it. I'm going to say that it's an A minus thesis with the potential to either be an A or the potential to be a colossal failure, depending on how I flesh it out over the next couple of minutes. Interesting, because I'm thinking I'm, I'm much lower on this as my own Houston Rockets are about to potentially lose the MVP. I'm thinking this is much, I'm then down to like a C minus range. I mean, it's clever. <laughs> so we'll see what you got to say in a second. <laughs> All right, Mr. Penn, or should I say JD? <laughs> Sounds like you are really high on this thesis. You think the Mavs may have won out by not getting Giannis Antetokounmpo. So what are your thoughts? Okay, so the first thing, and for, I have to acknowledge this is, of course, my thesis, so that inflates the grade a little bit. <laughs> I tried to think about this from as many angles as possible. I think we've all gotten better during the pandemic at being kind of our own independent risk analysts. I'm going to try to cover every single possible outcome to defend this thesis. The most obvious outcome, of course, about why Giannis signing the extension is good for the Mavs is because there probably wasn't a great chance that if Giannis made it to free agency this coming summer that he would have picked the Mavs because the Heat (laughs) and the Warriors as a trade destination possibly are all there. So first of all, we have to round that percentage down to that there is a very small window in in which Giannis both makes it to free agency and then chooses the Dallas Mavericks as his team. Meanwhile, it's sort of like that... um, Einstein quote, right? Insanity is basically expecting different results after you've done something like a thousand times. The Mavs have been here for nine consecutive years of trying to get some big name free agent and then holding, you know, keeping the powder dry, I think was the original saying. And then meanwhile, all of their other B-level options, C-level options for free agents, and even the trade market evaporates underneath their feet as they're waiting to get a big name free agent that opts to go elsewhere. The Mavericks don't get big name free agents. They make really great trades and apparently once in a generation draft picks (laughs) or draft night trades. They don't even make once in a generation draft picks. They make once in a generation draft night trades. From Europe. They get them from Europe. (laughs) Yes. No. (laughs) It's part of the larger branding. So... But I, that's not a, a great part of the argument. Like, no one wants to argue, like, okay, well, they wouldn't have gotten Giannis anyway. So, like, I just wanted to acknowledge that. I don't think there was a great chance they were going to get him in the first place. However, if they were to get him, there's then two arguments that I think that need to be sub-arguments that need to be fleshed out. The first of which is that I'm not totally convinced that they need Giannis Antetokounmpo. Uh, I'm not even going to say his last name. Antetokounmpo. To win a championship. I think what they need is they need a healthy, a consistently healthy Kristaps Porzingis. And they also need a on-ball defender or their top three on-ball defenders in order of strength 
don't necessarily need to be Josh Richardson, who's the new number one, but last year it was Maxi Kleba and Dorian Finney-Smith. Those were your two best on-ball defenders. That's a problem. They're thin overall at their wing positions. They're kind of thin at their center position, honestly, behind Porzingis. And if they just get some tougher, more athletic wings, and they can get Kristaps to play 65 games in an 82-game season, they can go get a championship that way, too. Well, and I think you hit on a couple interesting things, too. It's really... So it's not a league of a big three anymore, right? So it's not right. the Miami Heatles, who I know you're going to point out the Dallas Mavericks beat, right? But it's not... the I Parker, I've grown so much. Come on. I wasn't going to go there. <laughs> it's the, the Miami Heatles had three, and so it felt like you needed three. But now it's a bunch of pairs. You have... You know, in L.A., you've got two pairs in Paul George and Kawhi, and you've got a pair in A.D. and LeBron. In Milwaukee, they're trying to call Drew that pair with Giannis. You know, we can talk if you right. if that works or not. But in Miami, you've got Bam and Jimmy, and in Boston, you've got Jalen and Tatum, and everyone's got two. And so I will say right now, like, if you think Kristaps can be that guy in your Dallas, you do have two. And I think you raised a good point and frankly why I gave it a C- and not a failing grade is that wow <laughs> the idea that Giannis would sign in Dallas is just antithetical to what we've seen in free agencies in the past right like the, everyone remembers the first DeAndre Jordan attempts when they like locked him in a house and said don't do it and he didn't come right and I, I think that it's just not really their MO Giannis does seem to buck MO no pun intended but does seem to buck the MO oh my a God. lot right um uh, <laughs> But I, I'm interested in a lot of things because so I'm a Houston guy and obviously we're fighting to keep an MVP. I mean maybe not maybe not fighting. Maybe we're just trying to see if we can get back for him. But getting an MVP type player, I'm of the opinion that anytime you can pull in high level talent, you do talent and you figure out depth later, right? You take you want the Miami Heat, and if it takes a year to figure out who your other three guys are, you're going to the finals four years in a row, right? Sure. If you are the Warriors, of course you go get Kevin Durant. Who cares about depth? Like, <laughs> you you go, you go get Kevin Durant. And so I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Is there Are there basketball schematic things, which is just the fact that you already have a pair and it's not worth worrying about? So that's the final angle that I have to tackle, having created this thesis. But I just want to get the, to just reestablish. The first angle was that he wasn't coming anyway. So that kind of takes care of, you know, whatever, 75% of all universal scenarios. He's not <laughs> he, he's not going anywhere. The remaining twi- 25% where he goes somewhere, maybe only 10% is he goes to the Mavericks. And then the question is, does he make sense on that team with Luka? And this is where I'm not as confident, but I feel like I can talk my way there. I am not as bullish as I think a lot of people are on Giannis's skill set, frankly. Hmm. And I think what it is, and this might be I'm going to lay all my ignorance on the table and say you can call me you can call me ignorant you can call me an imposter but this is what I see and this is the data the limited data that I have okay Giannis's game in a lot of ways reminds me more of maybe Gobert who has some handles than a LeBron who's longer and can't shoot as well Um, I think (laughs) in a lot of ways Giannis is miscast his natural game or at least his quote-unquote natural game in the bud offense is built around isos transition and post-ups and we could talk all day about the merits of post-ups in 2020 but if nothing else it's not necessarily a necessary part of an elite offense the iso situation 
is confounding to me because I don't know necessarily if you've got the ball in Giannis's hands coming up the court. I'm not sure if Luca is frankly as useful, and we haven't seen him, admittedly, in a large enough sample size of where leather, whether Luca can be an effective off-ball player. He certainly doesn't look like he's going to be a very elite off-ball shooter. He only shoots about 31% on three-point attempts, which is maybe something that isn't talked about enough in his game is that he's a subpar three-point shooter that can maybe get better, but it's not going to get to Steph Curry, Damian Lillard level elite. I don't think ever. And so then the question becomes for me, where does Giannis not get in the way? If I have Luka Doncic out on the perimeter, he was most effective in lineups that had KP, Christoph Porzingis for the uninitiated, as your five, because you just had five out the whole time. It provides a lot of space for Luka to do Luka things um, and kick the ball out for threes. I mean, it's not, you know, a innovative offense by any means. It's the exact same offense that we ran with small ball James Harden to a certain extent lineups. (laughs) I'm just not sure and i and i can be skeptical about luca as a mavericks fan too for a variety of reasons i'm just not sure if Giannis doesn't just muck things up if you don't have someone sagging off of him when he is on the perimeter as what happens in the playoffs or if you just have a clog in the paint that luca can't necessarily shoot the mavs out of himself necessarily well what's interesting there is it's definitely even in milwaukee Giannis is a very different player when he's not bringing the ball up. And as far as the two being effective, you do get to who brings the ball up, Giannis or Luka. They both are tremendous passers. Obviously, Luka is a better shooter than Giannis. I mean, you point out neither one's great, but he is a better shooter than Giannis. And you probably run some kind of a 1-5 pick and roll with Luka coming across. Giannis, I think the interesting play would be a 1-4-5 where you have Kristaps on a pop and Giannis on a roll and you have all kinds of options. But the deal there becomes is are you do you need Giannis for that or you do you need like someone who's just kind of 6'10", 6'11", and athletic because you're taking away or you're not using some of the things that make Giannis Giannis for the majority of the time out there. I still think right. there are 10 or 15 minutes where Luca sits down because he plays 36 minutes a night. We could joke about him being out of shape to start the season this year, but he sits yeah. down. And then you get to let Giannis be Giannis. That sounds really fun, right? <laughs> like, yeah, but then we have a max contract stowed into really 10 meaningful minutes of, of Giannis at his full potential. Or not even necessarily his full potential, but his potential as it has been demonstrated on the Milwaukee Bucks over the past four years, let's say, maybe three and a half. The other part of this too is that, this was a thought experiment that I'd like to get your thoughts on actually, Mr. Ainsworth, is what do you think the Milwaukee Bucks need, if they didn't already get it in Drew Holiday, to be a serious championship contender? Because I don't necessarily personally consider them a serious championship contender yet. They'd have to at least make a finals for that to be the case for me. But I'm not sure if they got what they needed in Drew Holiday, but I'm also not sure what they need. And I don't think it's Luka Doncic. Because if you were to say like, okay, let's flip the tables. What does Luka on Hmm. the Bucks look like? Where Brooke Lopez is essentially your poor man's Porzingis. You know, he's that five that's like, you know, close to seven foot, I think i think what brooke lopez is is he listed as seven foot sure for all intents and purposes for all intents and purposes he shoots six threes a game something like that which is similar to porzingis numbers does luca on the bucks all of a sudden take them where they need to go and fix all of their problems i don't think it does 
but I'd be curious to get your take. Well, what's funny is one of the arguments, and I, I find a lot of similarities in Luca and Harden. I think Luca's long-term prospects are obviously better. He's so much younger. But like in their current present form, I see a lot of crossover. And mm-hmm. I actually have argued that if they could get over it and play together, I don't think Giannis and James like each other, but I think Harden's one of his better trade destinations would be there. But again, the thing that's happening there in my head is Luca is taking the, Luca or Harden is taking the ball a lot more and pushing Giannis into the second seat. And I'm just kind of assuming he would do that. I guess that there's a fair assumption that why would he ever do that? He's a two-time MVP, Defense Player of the Year. Like he's he's the man. If I'm trying to build, if I'm looking at like who can play with them and keep him as the man, I'm looking for like. Do I get Clay Thompson? Like I, I need someone right. who can dominate the game without needing the ball a lot. Because Clay's biggest—I mean, he had sixty points in three quarters and only drove the ball eleven times, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it, he has those kinds of nights, and so that would obviously be the first thought. But the truth is, there's any number of superstars Clay fits well with. That's not unique to Giannis or Luke or Harden for that mistake. But I like, I, I mean, I like the clay pick a lot. I, I say I've thought of that myself too, uh, as I'm sure the internet has. Again, not on Twitter here, people. But clay also absorbs a greater defensive weight allocated to him around the perimeter than I think Luca does currently. You know, it's one of those things where like, I'm sure there are these meta-analyses of the types of spacing and situations. And again, I'm, I'm not a, I am not a basketball expert, people. I am not a coach well, I am a coach of a two-time champion girls basketball team, but uh, that's besides the point. You know, I, I do not know what Rick Carlisle, what Coach Bud, what a Spolstra knows in terms of spacing and schematics, but I do know that you got to sit closer to Clay Thompson at the three than you do Luca, frankly, and that space that affords Giannis more potential in the middle, I think, than a team with Luca does. I'm also, you know, at this point, I imagine you're going through this, Parker, too. I, I do also look at James Harden as kind of like the schematic or the, or the what's the word I'm looking for? Precursor in a lot of ways to Luka and who he can, you know, become and what his career is going to mirror. I think Luka is much more fun to play with, frankly, for a variety of reasons. <laughs> Not necessarily fun, as much fun after the game, though. Um, <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, you don't need Instagram to hear about that, people. But I'm not sure what type of team, like if if I said, okay, Parker, you get a do-over. You know, Harden's going to be on the Rockets. And you know what? We're going to wipe your slate clean. You can go get people that are reasonable. Like, obviously, we'd say, like, okay, you put him with a team with Kyrie and Kevin Durant. No one's winning a championship for the next four years, at least. But if you could build your team around James Harden, is it just the 2018 team with, or was it 2017, with a healthy Chris Paul? Like, what kinds of players fit around James Harden? And then, therefore, what kinds of players fit best around Luka, if you could just do it in a really idyllic situation? Oh, well, so the 2018 team was the most successful. Obviously, anyone in Houston would say we're a hamstring away, right? That was the the quote that seems to stab us all in the chest. I think that if I'm, like, thinking about the way that unlocked James in an MVP kind of way, he had a playmaking point guard in Chris Paul, who was also a good shooter. Chris Paul shot, like, 36%, 35 and change from three that year. Clint Capella as a rolling big man because that that James Harden floater or lob pass, those were like hard to distinguish for defenses. 
Uh, you had PJ Tucker and Trevor Reza in the corners for three. You had Eric Gordon. You had a re- you had a pretty strong team in that sense. You had Luke Mbamute coming off the bench. Good, good, solid team. As I look at it, the differences if I were trying to improve that team would obviously be uh, if you think about the way they went down, going 0 for 27 from three for a stretch. You know, you'd probably want more consistent shooters than an Ariza or a you know Luke wasn't healthy in the playoffs or. You know, I, I guess that'd be where I'd plug around him. So if I'm looking at doing the same thing for Luca, does that mean my playmaking point guard is man, I don't even know. Is it is it Kyrie? I don't know if they put Kyrie in there or not. As a three, obviously I just saying Clay's praises, but a three and D wing seems to be one of the easier things to find in the NBA right now because every team wants one, so you know all their names. Robert Covington would do a lot of good things for teams right now. And then the biggest thing Capella was was a defensive juggernaut and a right. ro- a rim running. On the pick and roll, you had to account for him running to the rim because he was going to get a dunk. And I don't mean to like shrink Giannis to just doing that, but I cannot think of a scarier thing then I can't come off of Luca on this pick and roll, but I also am giving up a lob to the Greek freak when he can jump, literally jump over. Was it Tim Hardaway Jr. and the Knicks a couple right. years ago? Like, so mm-hmm. I, I don't. I guess I am limiting what Giannis does there, but it's because he's the scariest version of that. Yeah, and I guess, and I think that's where my acknowledgement of a great at the beginning came in is that I think he would be absolutely elite as a role man. And as someone to clean up messes, you know, on Luca's behalf, I wonder what the trade-offs are for the greater offensive schematic for Carlisle slash Luca in that instance. And I just don't think that that's an efficient purchase in a way. Like, I just don't think that like necessarily allocating a max contract to Giannis to ask him to only do those things really makes sense. And, you know, part of it too is that Giannis is a transformative offensive and defensive player. The Mavs don't need a transformative offensive player. They had the historically, they had the best offensive or most efficient offense in NBA history last year. What they need is to go from 18th defensively to maybe something like 12th just to get them, you know, where that historic offense can kind of like in some ways tip the scales to where that 12th rated defense feels more like a ninth or 10th rated defense. And they just don't necessarily need to blow their load on a huge contract to do that. What they do need in a lot of ways for clutch uh, improvements, just to harp on one thing offensively, is that Luca's got to shoot better than, what is it, like maybe scratching 70% on free throws? Like if he can get that closer to like an 85% or even, hell, if he can get it to a 78%, that's going to take care of some of those clutch time losses right there. Well, I will say Giannis was last season's defensive player of the year. I I'd imagine he's in the running at the end of this season as well. He is not going to be the only person in the running that is 6'10 or taller. So I guess you could pick up another person in that same vein that is that tall and that great defensively. You know, Rudy Gobert just signed a big deal, and I could joke about how I think that's a little bit of an overpay, but you could find... Oh, it was a huge overpay. (laughs) Don't joke about that. That's serious. (laughs) But you could find somebody to do that. So I get. I guess I'm getting at is that I'm a you always want talent person. I understand how what I, it sounds like you're getting at is that Giannis as a pickup would either limit Giannis or limit Luca. It's a, it's the pairing that you're not seeing a whole lot of benefit from. It, 
and I don't think that that pairing is worth the amount of cash that you'd have to pay to get that contract. Yes, I think that's ultimately it. And honestly, I think, you know, there's a greater thing to be said for obviously, like, my, obviously my thesis ha- does not include that I think it's just better for basketball that Giannis stays. Like, I like having, you know, more teams with less consolidated talent like that. It's nice, as obviously as a person who grew up loving and watching Dirk for you know, nearly his 20-year career. Like, that was great, you know, and that's going to be so meaningful if he can pull it out, if Giannis can pull it out and win a championship for Milwaukee. That one championship, in a lot of people's eyes, will carry a greater weight than it would if he won two or three with Luka. And vice versa is true as well. If Luka wins, even with KP, I don't think people are going to perceive those wins the same way they would if Giannis were, were to join the team as well. But then that gets into a whole other kind of esoteric conversation, I guess, of like how we grade accomplishments via titles and how much context we need to consider when we, when we look at certain title wins. Friends, that is another special winter break edition of fn sports hope you enjoyed our substitute teachers this week if you want to reach out to them through me you can find me on twitter at painsworth 512 instagram same handle painsworth 512 that's p-a-i-n-s-w-o-r-t-h 512 all one word we also respond to the fn sports twitter page that's f-i-n-s-b-r-t-s number two fn sports two all one word on twitter I will use dash PA, Shaka will use dash CC, and we'll probably just direct <laughs> the tweets to our substitute teachers if you need them. We also have an Instagram handle that's at F underscore N underscore sports. And on that, find some different clips of different shows we've done. Thank you all so much for listening to the substitute teachers talk sports this week. We all enjoyed hearing what they had to say. So remember, kids, listen to your teachers. And when it comes to sports, don't flunk with us. Later, guys. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's wintertime. When temperatures go down, the likelihood goes up that your furnace and other appliances go down with them. So don't risk a costly replacement. Stay comfortable with coverage on the appliances you depend on most with the Service Guard Appliance Repair Program from Black Hills Energy. It's peace of mind in a plan. Visit blackhillsenergy.com slash sign up to learn more.